Welcome to Conversations Over Coffee, where we're brewing inspiring discussions on the Philippine startup ecosystem with those who are making things happen. I'm your host, Bitsantas from Kickstart Ventures. Join me in every episode as we sit down with key figures in the startup community as we explore their successes and challenges and how we can work together to shape the future. Hey, Mike, let's dive right into it. I think let's jump right into one of the recent topics of conversation around the, around the country about the recent rice shortages and the challenges faced by the Philippines in maintaining an adequate rice buffer stock. You know, do you have any thoughts around the potential role of agri-tech and food tech innovations in addressing critical issues such as the one we're experiencing now? And, you know, we've, we've experienced this over and over again with other various foods, you know, onions in the past, a while back it was chili. What are your thoughts? A bit. You know, rice, I think it's a really, really important issue right now. Well, that's kind of understating it. It's a, first of all, it's a huge market. Some estimates, 10 to $15 billion. We are the eighth largest producer. I recently found out we're the number one importer. I always thought we were like top 10 importer. But the problem is like we're an archipelago, right? So there's not enough, you know, really good arable land to produce domestically. So the challenge I think for us is to increase yield. I think yield right now is around 28 metric tons per hectare compared to our neighbors in other countries they're doing like three four someone's doing five i believe china's doing five metric tons per hectare so the yield there is crazy and if we can just increase our yield by a little bit we should be okay right i mean we are the largest importer because we don't export anything like we don't make enough for us to eat so critically it's yield like if we leave the politics out of it the supply chain issues out of it the current structure out of it right it's yield and yield how do you increase that and that's what a lot of our agri-tech guys are doing, right? The companies we're, we're talking to. One is Sarisuki. What they're doing is they're doing agri-tech, but it's not super high-tech. It's, it's actually better, more efficient farming technologies that are existing, right? It's not a lot of hardware. There's definitely no software. For example, what they're doing is they're putting like soil covers on the land, which will prevent erosion, use less pesticide. And then they're having nets on top of the planted areas, which will increase yield and also reduce pesticide. So that's like, they're doing that in pilot stages, but some of the crops, including rice, I think, which have, they've started to harvest, have actually started to produce better results than those that were planted with traditional methods. So that's a really good example of how you can increase yield by just doing very, very simple methods. And that's one way to look at it. The other way is we're looking at other companies that are doing like really very interesting things in more deeper technology. So there's a company that's doing gene editing, and it's doing that to improve yields of rice. And that would be, for example, once you plant it, then you know that the yield is going to be much better than other yields that, or other rice varieties that you've used before. So you did touch on it, right? That food security, food supply is such a big problem that there are many parts of the solution, right? And there are large parts of it that will rely on public support, a lot of private sector support. But as you said, there is a role, or maybe more accurately, an opportunity for, for technology and ourselves in, in the VC and tech world, there's an opportunity for us to make a positive impact in yep. these problem areas, right? Yep. So maybe let's zoom out for a bit and maybe just go to your background and go through your journey to VC. Can you tell us about yourself, your background? How did you go from actually you started out in law and then made your way through PE and then eventually VC? Yeah. So I'm dating myself, but I went to college during the dot-com bubble and the dot-com crash, right? So everything was about the stock market, tech, all these big tech companies. 
And so when I went to college, I was ready. Like I was on track to be economics major and probably be a banker right, and do all of this stuff. And then I remember my second year, I walked into a class because you could, you know, you can take like lots of different classes, right? So I walked into a class and it was like European history. And like I walked in and like they were just telling stories about like, you know, I think that time it was like nights and stuff. So it's like, oh man, this is like the best, the best class I've ever taken in my life. So I dropped everything. I dropped all my economics. I dropped all my math and I just did history. So that's all I did. And it was like, I had the best time. I would just go to class, just do papers, just, you know, read books and stuff. And I wasn't like worried about all these other things that I was worried about. Problem is when, you know, it came time to go out to the real world, especially growing up here, during third year, fourth year, you're like, oh man, what am I going to do with a history degree? <laughs> so, <laughs> of course, what do you do with a history degree? It's like, oh, well, I'll just be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, there's other things, right? You know, you want to help, you want to do public service, whatever, you know, during the system, et cetera. So yeah, I became a lawyer, but it was always in the back of my mind that, you know, I, you know, I always wanted to do finance. It was still interesting to me. I did some finance work when I was a lawyer. I did capital markets work, mostly M&A, but I did also did a lot of capital markets work, help with security stuff. So the, there was kind of a bug there. Went to my master's. At master's, they always had these things where like every week or every, every week, they'll bring an alumni, a big famous alumni to come and talk during lunch. So, because you go there and then the, the lunch is free, right? so everyone goes and then they listen to these alumni. And you know what? Every single famous alumni that they brought back, this was master's in law, right? So this was the law school. Every single famous alumni they brought back was not a lawyer anymore. So Parang was like, oh man. <laughs> right? Parang, oh, okay, wait, like what's going on here, right? All these guys were like, you know, super famous, super wealthy. Parang had used law as a springboard to do other things. Right. And so there, so I germinated a little bit more, came back, I came back here to the Philippines. And then I had this like really amazing opportunity where I met at that time, his name is Dennis Montesillo, president of BPI Cap at that time. And he took a chance on me and invited me to do investment banking without any finance background, without any banking background. I was just, I was just literally, I was just a lawyer, right? With a history background. So yeah, and so Pang, he took us, he took this big chance on me. And I, at the same time, I also took a big risk on myself. I bet on myself, right? That I could like become, you know, a banker and start to do finance. And, I, you know, I think it turned out pretty well. He still talks to me till this day. So, I, you know, I, I, we have coffee once in a while. So, you know, we're, we're still good friends. I consider him a mentor. I ended up my banking career, like running the debt capital markets desk. So we were raising bonds, mostly doing leverage finance. And then I was fortunate enough to move to the buy side at Seawood, which is a private equity firm here in the Philippines. So that started my investing career. That was interesting. And it also kind of piqued my interest in food because at Seawood, I was fortunate enough to be a director of Akaroa Salmon, which is a big premium salmon producer in New Zealand. So that was a good experience for me. And then there, and then the good folks here, you guys at Kickstart found me and uh, brought me over, took me away from the dark side of PE and brought me <laughs> to, the, to the light side of venture capital. Cool. So we've been working together at, at Kickstart for a while now. And to be honest, it was really only the other day that I realized that you had you took your undergrad in history. Honestly, it's a bit like our other colleagues when they were like, "What? You were you were a history major?" It's like, so is there anything you took away or parang you take with you through your journey of your in your career and parang figuring out what you want to do, what you can do, what impact you can make? Is there anything that you you take with you from that study of history? I think there's a lot of things. So I said, Kanina, that like history, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life, right? When I was graduating. 
But, you know, reflecting on it and reflecting on what I learned, there's so many things that you can take away that are relevant to VC and, of course, to, to you know, other walks of life. But to VC in particular, history, I think, teaches two important things, right? The first is the role of technology and how it can really change human society. And second, it's learning about human nature. So first, right? So how does tech change human society? Well, think about it simply, like the invention of fire, right? The invention of the wheel. Like those were technological leaps that made human society move forward significantly. One thing that I think is very interesting, I, I'm a really big fan of like a bit more ancient history. So the Phoenician alphabet, which is, you know, what are the Latin alphabet, the Greek alphabet, and then the Latin alphabet, what they're all derived from. So how that developed. So at that point in time, which was maybe 8,000 BC, something like that, writing and reading was reserved for priests or like really rich people, right? The aristocracy, because it was hard to learn. It was symbols that thousands of them, millions of them. So for the common person, it was hard to read and write because you just don't have time to do that. Phoenician alphabet, what they did is they have these like symbols and each symbol represents a sound. So it's like our alphabet now, Abba, Abacada, right? Is that why it's called, like, why those kinds of alphabets are called phonetic alphabet? Yes, yes, ah. I believe so. So ganun, right? So Abacada, and then it was like not very many symbols, 20 something, maybe like our alphabet now. For them, that's the technological leap, right? And that democratized the alphabet where now everyone could read and write. And what that did is allowed societies to develop where everyone can communicate better and allowed Phoenicia, for example, to have this giant empire that eventually became Carthage, you know, fought Rome, etc., Hannibal. So yeah, so it's, it's those things. If you guys have watched the, did you guys watch The King, the Netflix story, the Netflix movie with Timothy Chalamet? He is Henry V, though, so he's like Henry V. Henry V at that time won the Battle of Agincourt, which is like battle where the undermatched English led by Timothy Chalamet is Henry V. This is actually a true story, right? I'm just saying Timothy Chalamet so everyone understands. But the French, who at that time were like, had these tanks. These tanks are like the knights, right? The cavalry. But the English had technological superiority, which they had never yet unleashed on the battlefield, which is the longbow. The longbow is like a bow the size of a human person. Six feet tall, can pierce armor, which had never been done before. Never been done before. Pierce armor and flew farther than every arrow. So this is just a long-winded way of saying like it teaches you that technological leaps are important because it gives you an advantage not only over like other people your peers, but it gives you an advantage as a society to to move forward. And then my second point, which was it helps you learn about human nature, right? So again, back to like my stupid nerdy like uh, ancient history thing. I was listening to this podcast about you know Cleopatra, and of course Cleopatra and Mark Antony, which is like best friend Julius Caesar, whatever. They're tied together. And the reason Mark Antony apparently lost the influence in Rome was he decided to focus on one is he decided to go to the Eastern provinces and whatever, gallivant around there. And what that shows you is like, for example, for VC is if you want to focus on your business, focus on your core business. Don't focus on other things. So he didn't focus on Rome, did other things, right? Another one, I was trying to think of like good things to say for like what shows human nature. It's like in World War II, the great appeasement. So the British, other European countries like decided to appease Hitler instead of confronting him directly, right? And when they did that, they gave him an arm and, and they gave him a finger. They took, he took the whole arm, right? And so that it tells, tells you about human nature, right? There's a reason why people say history repeats itself because there's lessons in history, motivations, actions, human nature, technological leaps that you can take moving forward and which are very relevant to VC. All right, so jumping into the world of VC when you joined us, were you expecting to be looking into these sectors that you're looking into now, right? Among the team, you have become to be known as the food guy. Um, I think 
one just thing so that, happens. <laughs> you know, I feel like like the world of startups and VC, at least here in the Philippines, and maybe to some extent Southeast Asia, it's only kind of recently that it's expanded beyond the yeah. typical tech digital yeah. startup, right? Now we're looking at some of these more IRL, if you will, IRL companies. In real life? Uh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> And, and, you know, solving real problems and, and like fundamental problems and yeah. not just helping people become more productive at the office. Yeah. Right. Was this something that you were expecting me doing? I would say probably a little bit. Yes. I guess when, the way when I thought about investing, when I was see with it also until now is like, what's like the philosophical framework of investing, right? One is, the most important, of course, is, you know, we get returns for, for our LPs and that will allow us to continue making further investments, right? But what underpins our investments, right? And what, what kind of investments will generate those returns? And so I was thinking about like a philosophical underpinning for that. And then I was reading about this philosopher called Malthus, right? So Malthus had this idea where Population will increase exponentially, right? But resources only increase arith arithmetically. So the graphs are different, right? Very far. The exponential chart is kind of what we like to see from the growth of the startups that we invest in, right? So, but at the same time, if the resources don't increase as much as the population, there's going to be competition, right? Amongst that population. And everyone will fight for those scarce resources, which is part of our whole world of plenty theme, right? We know that resources are kind of scarce and distribution is very whacked. So it's not getting it to the right people. So people are fighting over scarce resources, right? Basically, right? And then, so even as you said, there's going to come a point where you have this thing called the Malthusian catastrophe, which is where there's like a check on human society that rebalances population, meaning there's a disease, there's war, there's famine, right? Or population will never get to the point where it can just continue growing and growing and succeeding and succeeding because there are these like limits to resources. So that's kind of like what underpins the thought here and why when I came here and I saw this World of Plenty thesis, it was like, oh, this is like really kind of like something that's very important and something I think that we as a, you know, as a VC firm and of course our group being, you know, who they are, the oldest conglomerate in the Philippines, very well respected, have the role to, to solve those problems. So coming to the conclusion that there is an opportunity for technology-driven solutions to address deeply felt societal problems in the country, you know, what are some of these deeply felt societal problems that you feel these kinds of technology-driven solutions are in a very good position to start addressing now? Yeah, okay. So, so going back to what I was talking about, this Malthusian catastrophe, right? There's checks on the human population, which will prevent it from like succeeding, basically. And so our mission, I think, as a VC is to remove those checks, right? Those checks are basically the problems that we face as a VC, right? And not as a VC, really as a society. And there's so many of these things because VC, our role is really to provide, you know, capital to technology, where technology is going back to all this like nerdy stuff I was talking about history. It's, it's the great equalizer, right? So remember what I was talking about, the Phoenician alphabet, it really equalized, you know, it equalized learning. The printing press equalized literacy. So everyone started to learn about books and stuff and, you know, get a little bit smarter. People started to read better. And so what are these problems we're looking at? So right now, the tech that we're looking at, probably one thing that we're super proud of is our recent investment in Rosin Technologies. So we were talking about rice earlier, right? That's not really agri-tech. That's this Rosin Technologies, is more food tech. But they can play such a huge role because with Rosin Tech's technology, theoretically, 50, a 50 milliliter biopsy from a single calf like, can produce 10,000 kilograms of meat. 
So if you can imagine, taken to like the extreme, which is, you know, theoretically, right? One herd of cattle can feed the entire planet. So that is like tech can play such a big role in this, this lingering problem of food insecurity. And then, so what's another big problem? You know, energy, right? Energy is, broadly speaking, the way we use energy is negative because there are deleterious effects to the environment, right? It's very, very costly. And, you know, there's not enough energy for us to use, right? So that's another check to human society where you're not able to grow and you're not able to succeed because you have to keep on worrying about where you're going to get your energy and producing enough energy that it's not going to destroy you in the future. So what's the tech that's interesting there? It's something like nuclear fusion, right? That's a, it's a cheap, clean, based load technology that can effectively power the entire planet. And it removes this problem you have of scarcity of energy and like negative carbon effects. As a VC, then you think about these, these things and like the solutions that it can provide. And you say, okay, look, if you can find a tech that gives you enough food to eat, right? Stops letting you worry about how you're going to power your home. Stops letting you worry about how you're going to power the planet. And then how that is going to affect everyone where everyone will also have to stop worrying about that. Imagine like what kind of effect that's going to have on civilization, right? Like people are now free to like not worry about hunger, not worry about energy, not worry about security, right? And like, where will that take you as a society? Like, just imagine the changes, right? Imagine. It's crazy. Like, it's just freed from all these things and which from our investment will help that. It's just very expansive to think about and kind of like makes me feel very small. But lets me know that, you know, we do have a role to play in solving all these problems. So what does the timeline look like for these technologies to make it into our market, right? A lot of these technologies that you've just described right now, you know, they're quite early in their stages of maturity as a as technology. But at the same time, I believe like we're also seeing some applications and some technologies that are immediately applicable, right? Yeah. For example, the way Sarisuke is yes. u- utilizing technology has immediate benefits. Yep. So how do you see the spectrum of technologies making these positive impacts and these fundamental problems? Yeah, that's a very interesting question because I, I guess it also touches upon like what a little bit of our strategy is as investors, right, as a firm. So Sarisuki or other companies in our portfolio in the field or in the space like Tree Dots or Mosaic, right? Those are examples for now, right? That's technology that can be immediately implemented, whether it's the software of Mosaic, you know, the supply chain of, of Tree Dots and the agri-tech of Sarisuki and also the software. Those you can do right away and we consider those as investments that, you know, will have immediate effects. Others like Rosin Tech, you know, Rosin, it's it's already commercial, but it's not yet fully available to the public in terms of the underlying technology, right? It's not yet available to retail, but it's it's available to businesses already. And then farther along down the line is nuclear fusion, right? Earliest estimates is that that's probably going to be commercialized 2030s. That may be a bit, you know, optimistic. The UK is trying to build a fusion system that will probably be operating by 2040. Same with Ether, which is like kind of like the multinational fusion I guess, conglomerate of different countries trying to solve the problem of fusion also in the 2040s. So that's why we have a different view when we look at companies like Sarisuki than when we look at companies like Rosin Technologies. For Rosin Tech, so I guess now this is really answering your question a bit, is, you know, we think about them like they're a pick and shovel play. So a pick and shovel play is, if you guys know the gold rush in San Francisco or in the West Coast, everyone went to San Francisco because they wanted to get gold. But you didn't know if you're going to get gold, so... If you're an investor or you're interested in the industry, you weren't sure if the person who you backed would be able to find gold. But you know who made money in the gold rush is the person who built the pick and shovel that every single person who wanted to buy gold bought from, right? So this industry that was unsure, unclear, potentially 
rewarding. You didn't know who the winner was, but you did know who the winner was if you backed the guy who was giving them all the tools, this enabling technology. So with Rosin Technologies, they are a pick and shovel play. They provide this enabling technology for an industry where right now it's unclear who the winner is, but you believe in. And so that's kind of like our thesis for that space, right? For cultivated meat. We like backing these guys who we think have a compelling commercial solution already to an industry that we think will shake out, not in a year, but maybe in a few more years down the road. And as an investor, that's that's more compelling, right? Because, you know, your returns are a bit more sooner, a bit clearer, and the commercial, I would say, space that you're playing in is a bit clearer. So many of these startups in these spaces, in these sectors, are approaching many of these problems in very novel ways yeah. and taking very new approaches. And with these new approaches, and, and to some extent, like some of these new sectors that they're exploring, there are lots of barriers and challenges to it before they reach success, right? Particularly because many of these technologies are still early, typically a lot of the early adopters of technology are not necessarily where these technologies will make the most impact. Yes. Right? So, True. you know, for example, cultivated meats, you will probably find your initial market in the developed markets. But we all kind of just understand that ultimately solving the problem of food security really matters to those of us in the developing nations, right? So Yeah, probably more so, right? Yeah. Like how how do you think about these startups addressing these challenges to making an impact and being successful? Oh man. So maybe I'll go a little like not strictly VC here. <laughs> so I think of course the tech matters, right? The tech, the business plan, the go to market, the team, all the VCs will say, right? But honestly, like, I think the most important for a startup that is doing something that they think is potentially humanity changing or game changing is belief, right? That's what they need the most. They need belief. And I think they need belief in a couple different ways. They need us as investors to believe in them so they can keep on going and realize their vision, right? They need us to believe in the team, the tech, their value proposition, this, this market size that it's going to generate significant returns for us. And us, we also need to believe that this thing will work because let's say, for example, a more deep tech investment, for us, it's really a binary investment, right? It's a deep belief based on our very strong due diligence that this thing will turn on, that the science will prove itself. At some point, it's going to be more valuable in the future and that they're going to find their piece of the market and really win that market, right? So we're making a bet. We're believing in these guys. It's not just blind belief, right? You know, we're really thinking about it, we're really studying them, learning more about them, but we're believing in them. So that's from the investor side. From the customer side, of course, you have to believe in their products, right? Cultivate meat is interesting because now you're starting to see a shift where people are starting to believe that this meat is not just a solution for the future, but really is something that they would put as part of their diets. And that is something that is very important to this industry, this belief and this belief that the customers will change their minds. But then you also have someone like Sarisuki, right? When we invest in Sarisuki, I think, so what they do is, other than the agritech side, the agritech side sells to digital Sarisari stores. When we invest in them, I think they had maybe 2,000 Sarisari stores, which is basically like individuals who are Sarisari stores, but out of their homes or office spaces or wherever, right? Digitally, they don't have brick and mortar shops. Now, how many do they have? They have 7,000, like 7,000 active Sarisari stores. And so we believe that, of course, but you can see that these individuals who most of them are using it as their full, like, new employment, right? They believe in this platform to uplift them out of poverty. And that is something that is not just important for, 
for them to uplift them out of poverty, like for, um, from our perspective, as a VC perspective and from the startup's perspective, it's important for the startup to succeed, right? And that's, you know, how they overcome the challenges. Of course, of course, you know, we're still a VC, so all, you know, all the technical stuff has to matter too, right? <laughs> <laughs> Business, everything, tech, everything has to check out. But fundamentally, fundamentally, it's like, if you believe in it, if someone else believes in you, then, you know, you're probably halfway there, right? Yeah, I think one of the fulfilling things about being in VC, investing in tech startups in a developing market is that in developing markets, I mean, to be blunt about it, there's no shortage of problems to be solved. None, yes. And Every day. startups are essentially founders who are trying to solve problems. Yes. Right? So I think we're in a very fulfilling position of being able to support problem solvers. Yes, right? that's a great way to put it. Cool. Well, just to wrap things up, just to end the one question I like to ask everyone who joins me on the podcast, and I feel like you would be perfectly suited to answer this question as a history buff who likes to look in the past, but as someone on the team who's actually looking at some of these bleeding edge technologies and into the future, what is one idea or concept of the future, whether represented by a specific idea or a whole business built around it? that is representative of the future that has excited you recently? That is, I think, a very hard question to answer. So maybe I'll answer it in terms of like themes, right? So going back to... Sorry, yeah, so I've revealed so much. I reveal all my history stuff. So now like I have another like philosopher quote that I would like to think about. So this is famous phrase of Thomas Hobbes, right? Life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Basically, what he means is people are like mean. So if you don't have government, like that's what's going to happen to you, right? But it's, if you think about it, like just isolated, life is poor, solitary, nasty, brutish, and short. It's kind of true, right? Particularly for developed countries and a lot of our countrymen who like are very, you know, are not as fortunate. So like what's interesting to me, what's an idea in the future that's interesting to me, it's the opposite of that, right? It's an idea or an industry or whatever, a tech, that makes us live longer, that makes us more prosperous and, you know, makes us more connected as a single, single humanity, as a single society. Going back to when I was talking about this, this Maltese stuff, it's kind of like one of those, it's a breakthrough, right? It's, it's a breakthrough that will, you know, propel human society forward. And at the same time, it's something that is probably, I have to say it, I'm a VC, right? It's, you know, it's commercially feasible. It's, you know, <laughs> right? It would be a good investment. And what is that? Hopefully right now, you know, we're putting all our, we're not putting all our eggs. Like we are imagining that these areas we're going into in agri-tech, cultivated food, potentially gene editing, potentially nuclear fusion, right? We think that these are the things that, you know, are going to be the opposite of what Thomas Hobbes said, right? And not make life solitary, nasty, brutish, and short. And that's exciting. That's exciting. I think that's probably the most exciting thing for me. And hopefully, you know, we're early enough, we get good enough terms or able to invest in, and join these companies for the ride and like be there for the future where it's a future that, you know, we all want to live in. Awesome. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you very much for, for joining me for this chat. It Thank was you, great. I, was, I enjoyed it. Have a happy birthday. Thank you. Oh, it's, <laughs> yes, it's my birthday. Thank you. It's my birthday podcast. Enjoy the rest <laughs> of the day and I'll see you around. <laughs> Thanks, Mitt. See you. Thanks for joining us. Follow Kickstart Ventures on Facebook and LinkedIn to know who we're featuring next.